0: People at Peace Corps were trying to place me, but they were seemed to have a hard time getting some program to take me. And finally, they decided, well, you can go to Morocco and teach English in a school for the blind. I really felt like I was being pigeonholed. Oh, yeah, she's blind. She can teach English in the school for the blind. But it turned out to just be a fantastic experience to learn about how another culture deals with blindness. I really felt like I had so much in common with the other blind people there, even more than a lot of the Peace Corps volunteers with whom I worked
1: That was Sarah Presley speaking about her time in the Peace Corps in the mid-90s. Hear more about Sarah's life growing up in Georgia, her background as a statistician, her new career in rehabilitation counseling, and her love of dragon boating. This is Episode 7 of the Out of Sight Dragons Podcast. Welcome to episode 7 with Sarah Presley. Thanks for doing this, Sarah. You're welcome. You're one of the original members of the Out of Sight Dragons. How did you learn about the team and why did you decide to join the team?
0: I got involved with the Out of Sight Dragons through Oral Miller. I would say he, he and Mabel were like the grandfather and grandmother or the mother and father of the team, basically. They're the ones that got it started. And once Oral got it started, he called me and really wanted me to join the team. He kind of seemed to have this idea that I could be like a spokesperson and really be good for promoting the team. They had a meeting where they had some dragon boaters demonstrating how to do paddling. It was a dry land practice, but they had some paddles and we kind of all sat in chairs and got an idea about the stroke and it just sounded really fun. And I love the outdoors and I love being on the water. So I was pretty excited to try it.
1: Can you recall what the experience was like for you the first time you got in the boat?
0: It might have been a little chaotic. I don't remember how much instruction I really had with how to use the paddle before I got in the boat. I know we had a little bit, but pretty quickly, I really got to where I enjoyed just the, the stroke of paddling. I really enjoy the actual movements of paddling in a dragon boat, and I just enjoy being on the water. I really like it a lot.
1: Have you had vision challenges all your life?
0: Yeah, I've been pretty severely visually impaired my entire life. I was born with congenital cataracts. So my vision's always been bad. It got a little better when I was about seven when I had an operation on my eyes and they decided I should try to read using bifocals. But then I got glaucoma and little by little, you know, more of my vision left or it degraded, I guess. And so by the time I was finished with college, it had really, whatever gains I had gotten when I was seven were probably gone.
1: I know that you're a big walker. We actually ran into each other near DuPont Circle Mm -hmm. on Connecticut Avenue a few Mm -hmm. weeks ago. Connecticut Avenue is a busy road, and I saw you crossing the street there. Can you talk about what you're able to see with your limited vision and what strategies you employ to safely navigate the city on foot?
0: I can see some, but I consider my vision for street crossing and travel kind of a luxury The biggest advantage that my vision, what little vision I have left gives me is that I can see the stripes of the crosswalk. And so it makes it much easier to to line up, make sure that I'm actually gonna get to the other side of the street where I wanna get. But as far as crossing goes, for the most part, I use my ears and listen for the parallel traffic. Obviously I wanna hear that the traffic on the perpendicular street is stopped, but I'm also listening to hear the parallel traffic is going. Because one would hope that if parallel traffic is zipping through, then a a car coming perpendicular is going to stop. You know, unless they want to get hit by that parallel traffic going through the light. It depends a lot on lighting, too, as to whether my vision can be of much use in street crossings. At night, I actually can see the traffic lights. During the day, I cannot, so it's no use during the day, but at night, it's kind of a neat advantage. Where I saw you on Connecticut Avenue, that that is a nice street because several blocks of Connecticut Avenue have audible pedestrian signals, which means that there's something telling me when it's safe to cross Connecticut Avenue or when it's safe to cross our street. Some of them have it so that you can punch a button on a pole and it'll say wait to cross Connecticut And then it'll say when it's safe to cross And some of them even start to count down a little bit as it's getting closer to time when it's not going to be safe to cross So Connecticut Avenue is like that Luckily in D.C. we're getting more and more streets with audible pedestrian signals, but still most of them don't have it
1: Where did you grow up, Sarah?
0: I grew up in Georgia I lived in Atlanta until I was about 11, and then my family moved to Northwest Georgia about 20 minutes outside of a small town called Lafayette. Yes, they called it Lafayette, not Lafayette, even though it did have a Lafayette square. Where I lived then was in the middle of pretty much nowhere in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, the closest bigger town was Chattanooga, Tennessee. You moved from a large
1: metropolitan area to a very small place. What was that like for you? And were there any additional challenges being visually impaired in a smaller school system?
0: I think it was great for me. For one thing, I think 11 was a great age to move from the city to the country. For me, I had just been reading all the Little House on the Prairie books. So I was like, oh, this is like a pioneer adventure or something like that. And when we first moved there, we really did live in a shack. And for a while, we didn't even have any running water or anything until, you know, they got all the water hooked up. Before I left Atlanta, I was in the fourth grade, and it was a very hard year at school. I was mainstreamed, so I went to normal classes or classes with my sighted peers. But, you know, maybe for an hour or so during each day, I would go to the resource room or where there was special education teachers and mobility instructors to get some special education. And when I was in the fourth grade, I really experienced probably the only time that I can remember in my school career something verging on bullying from my sighted peers. I had a friend who was also visually impaired, but she could kind of pass as not so visually impaired and she was having a hard time deciding did she want to be my friend or did she want to kind of pass with the sighted people and not hang out with me and kind of make fun of me like they did. It was a bad year to be in school and then I moved to this small town. I even went to I went to a school that wasn't even in Lafayette. It was kind of in the middle of the country. And it had two grades to one classroom. When I got there, I was so far ahead of all those students in my fourth and fifth grade class that everybody there just thought I was a genius. So it was great, you know? I mean, the teachers were just all so impressed, and I could spell. And when we played Jeopardy's, the girls always won because I was on that team. And I think that really gave me a tremendous boost in my confidence. You know, ultimately, going through school in that's that small like country school and then moving later to Lafayette to go to school, I did miss out probably on learning about assistive technology for people who are visually impaired. That might have been helpful if I had learned about that sort of stuff earlier. But I think being the only blind student in that school and having so many teachers and students have such a good opinion of me really gave me a lot of confidence. It also meant that I had to learn to socialize in a sighted world. Like I said, when I was in the fourth grade, I felt like I was on the verge of being ostracized. I mean, I'm sure if I had stayed there, I still would have had some sighted friends. But when I moved, there was no choice. I really had to kind of sink or swim and and deal. and, And it it definitely helped that I was, that I could do school.
1: Was it at that time that you began to excel more in math?
0: I don't know. Well, even in the fourth grade before I left, fourth grade was when I discovered that I could do school. It was always the last one picked for the sports teams. You know, I wasn't popular, but somehow in the fourth grade, I discovered that I could do school and that people actually wanted my help and wanted to study with me. And so that of course just got accentuated when I went to the country to go to school and found out that that I was way ahead of everybody. In high school, I did well in math, but I never thought I would go into math. I majored in statistics at University of Georgia. But when I first went to UGA, I had no intention of majoring in any kind of math field. My father had wanted me to major in computer science at Georgia Tech. And my mother had said, you don't want to do that. And she showed me the catalog for Georgia Tech and how many math classes I would have to take. And I was like, no way, I don't want to do that. So when I got to UGA, I really had no intention of of majoring in math. And for my first couple of years, I hardly took any math. And I was just so excited. I had to take one math class. And I wouldn't have to take any more math for my entire college career. But then I took statistics, like the baby statistics class, just to to get that math requirement done. And I really enjoyed it. I think that's the first time that I realized that I actually did enjoy math was after not having it for a couple of quarters and then getting into it and then getting out of it for another year while I went through my sophomore year. And thinking maybe math is something that I would enjoy doing.
1: Athens is known as a great music town with bands like R.E.M. and the B-52s coming from there. And Mm -hmm. I think you were there in the Mm mid-80s. Did you ever see bands like that or any other bands that were fun to see? I saw
0: the B-52s, Love and Rockets, 10,000 Maniacs. I saw a few. And of course, there were just lots of other bands that didn't necessarily get big.
1: In terms of your studies, how were you able to handle your studies and your test taking with your limited vision?
0: When I was in my bachelor's, it was tough. Any tests that I could, I took orally. Like when I took Russian, I took all those tests orally. For my first couple of years, I could kind of still pretend like I could write with a big pen on heavy line paper and use bifocals, but my vision was just getting worse and worse, and by the time I was a senior, I wasn't using bifocals anymore. I wasn't even really trying to write. I had what they called a, a closed circuit television that I used that I could put material down on a little tray under what looked like a television and it would blow up the print on the paper onto that TV screen. And I used that a lot for math. I did some with that, you know, some with a CCTV, I did some orally, and I struggled to write went back to school in 2012 to get a master's degree. Now I didn't get it in math. I got it in rehabilitation counseling. But the difference going back to school was really amazing. 22 years later there were more books available in electronic format. It was very easy to get books. I could read books with the Kindle app on my phone listening to them. I could take tests by bringing my little netbook to class and getting a thumb drive from the teacher and just sticking it right in the computer and listening and typing my test right at the same time that every Everybody else was doing it in the class, so it was completely different.
1: What did you do after you graduated from the University of Georgia?
0: Eventually, after about 10 months, got a job at the Census Bureau as a computer programmer.
1: The Census Bureau just outside D.C.? Yep. So you moved up here at that time? Yeah,
0: that's what brought me to D.C. was a job like everybody else. And also just knowing that it was a very accessible place to live for somebody who couldn't drive. I almost got a job in the Research Triangle Park area of North Carolina working for a pharmaceutical company doing statistics. And then kind of at the last minute, I was like, you know what? I do not want to have to depend on people for rides for the rest of my life.
1: So you lived in the city and metroed out to. So
0: I lived in the city, and first I I would metro a little bit and ride a bus through southeast DC to get to Suitland because the metro didn't go out there until oh, right. the green until two thousand. Yeah.
1: A few years after college, you joined the Peace Corps. Is Mm -hmm. that correct?
0: I worked for four years as a computer programmer at the Census Bureau, and I was mostly programming COBOL, and that was incredibly boring. And I had always wanted to join the Peace Corps. I just hadn't quite gotten the confidence or the nerve to try it. But eventually, just boredom and curiosity finally got me to fill out the application.
1: Where did you spend your time in the Peace Corps?
0: I was in Morocco for two years from 1995
1: to 1997. What did you
0: do while you were there? I taught English at a school for the blind. It took a long time for me to get placed. People at Peace Corps were trying to place me, but they were seemed to have a hard time getting some program to take me. I'm sure that that had something to do with my being visually impaired. And finally, they decided, well, you can go to Morocco and teach English in a school for the blind. And I didn't really like that at first. I mean, that they did that. I really felt like I was being pigeonholed. Oh, yeah, she's blind. She can teach English in the school for the blind. But it turned out to just be a fantastic experience to learn about how another culture deals with blindness. When I was in Morocco, I I really felt like I had so much in common with the other blind people there, even more than a lot of the Peace Corps volunteers with whom I worked. We had like a training for three months before we started our our assignments. And when I first met some of the blind people in Morocco near the end of that training, I just felt such relief because even though we were from different cultures, there were so many things that we could understand about each other's lives that, you know, sighted people don't necessarily just get automatically.
1: Did you speak Arabic or French?
0: No, I had actually thought I wanted to go somewhere to speak Spanish because my Spanish was pretty good back in 1994, but I ended up in Morocco. They trained us pretty well in language for the three months that we were trained. Of course, it was like uh, jumping into the deep end once I had to actually use it, but I learned Arabic while I was there. That's what I spoke Moroccan Arabic. I didn't didn't learn too much French, a little bit. I could understand it just hearing it a lot, but... It was Arabic was my main language of communication.
1: Being in the Peace Corps turned out to be a great experience.
0: It was, like I said, a good experience to learn about how blind people deal in another country. and a good experience, as I've told people before, there were some things in Morocco that were actually easier for me as a as a blind person than they are here. For example, in Morocco, when I was there, there were plenty of people who couldn't drive. So you know, I lived in the capital, so there was plenty of public transportation. There were a lot more buses. There were also taxis within the city, you know, just like the taxis we have here. But then there were taxis that went out to small towns or, you know, other cities that were like a couple of hours away. You know, like if I wanted to go somewhere like Winchester now, how am I going to get there? I mean, maybe I can take Uber now and spend a lot of money. But there's really, no way for me to go there. Whereas in Morocco, if I had wanted to go to a similar city or a town of similar distance to where I lived, it was totally doable because other people needed to get there too that didn't have cars. Another thing that was nice in Morocco is at least back 20 something years ago. If I went to the store to buy something, there were lots of little tiny stores everywhere. And when I went in that store, everybody had to ask for what they wanted. You went in there and you told the proprietor what you wanted and he went and got it for you. Everybody, even sighted people, did that. It wasn't like you looked around the store and picked what you wanted and took it to the cash register. That was also nice too. Of course, there were other things that were more difficult, but It was kind of interesting to me that there were actually some parts of living there that were easier.
1: What motivated you to go back to graduate school and where did you go to graduate school?
0: If you had asked me in 2009 if I would quit a perfectly good federal government job doing economic data analysis to go back to school and study rehabilitation counseling, I would have said, no way. Partly because I had a good job and partly because I really had been very resistant to working in the disability field. I really kind of felt like people with disabilities kind of end up in that field. Some of them end up in that field because they genuinely want to contribute something to help others with disabilities. And some of them end up in that field because that's all some employers think they can do. I had always been kind of resistant to doing it but then I was kind of like you know what I've been working for 20 years I guess I don't have anything I have to prove anymore to anyone and I might have something to contribute to helping other people with disabilities get jobs since I had been working in in non-disability jobs for 20 years. So I went to George Washington University to get my master's degree in rehabilitation counseling.
1: What have you done since you got that master's degree?
0: I worked at the D.C. Rehabilitation Services Administration, working with people who were blind or hard of hearing for about 14 months. And then I got a job with the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, doing reasonable accommodations, basically helping people who already had jobs keep their jobs by getting them accommodations that would allow them to continue performing you know, the essential duties of their job so they wouldn't have to quit. When I was working as a rehabilitation counselor, I was thinking, man, it's so hard to get people jobs. I met a lot of people who had lost vision later in life and were not able to hang on to the jobs that they had. And I thought, boy, it'd be nice to help people hang on to the jobs that they have because it's so hard to get jobs. Once, get a job once you lose it. So I thought I would try this reasonable accommodation thing.
1: Coming back to the out-of-sight dragons, what motivates you to continue as a member of the team after all these years?
0: I think it's because I really enjoyed the activity of dragon boating. I feel that racing is kind of something that I have to do in order to be able to get to dragon boat. But I love dragon boating. I love getting in the boat and paddling. When I was in school, I realized that dragon boating was the only thing that I could do that would clear my head of all the anxious clutter that was there. Dragon boat paddling, for me at least, it's not really complex, but it's complex enough. It's, it's not so complex that it's overwhelming, but it's complex enough to occupy my mind completely and almost kind of get into the zone as people say to bury the blade of my paddle when I hear the drum pull and dig back the water as strongly as I can to pull the paddle out of the water at my hip and to set back up for the next stroke and just and of course it's, it's a very repetitive thing to do so maybe that's calming I just really enjoy dragon buddy I love going to practice and just really doing some hard strenuous paddling for an hour an hour and a half I'll race because I feel like if I'm on a team, I need to race. But I'd dragon boat all day and not race if I could.
1: (laughs) Thanks for doing this, Sarah. This was a great interview.
0: You're welcome. It's been fun.